very familiar verses. Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. This is after Paul has not only explained the workings of the gospel, but also what it means to live life by the Spirit and what our hope is. He says in Romans 8, verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with, also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So far from Romans 8, let's also turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 39. Here the author is encouraging the Hebrew Christians to continue in their struggle of faith. Hebrews 10, verse 32, he says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls." So far from chapter 10, let's also turn to the end of chapter 11, Hebrews 11, verses 32 through chapter 12, verse 2. And what more shall I say? For time would would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back 
from the received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect." Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God." So far, our reading from God's Word. Every Sunday in the afternoon service, we study the essentials, the basics of the Reformed faith and the Christian faith. And this week, we find ourselves once again at the beginning of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is our structure, our guide to that study. So we find ourselves in Lord's Day 1, that's on page 517 of your books of praise. There the question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Question two, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, every year the Canadian Reformed Churches like many other Reformed churches, dedicate the afternoon service to studying the basics, the essentials of the Christian and the Reformed faith. And to do that, as I mentioned a moment ago, we take the Heidelberg Catechism as our guide. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism is a very old document. Just last year, it celebrated 450 years. But in our experience, it's also not at all an outdated document. For some reason, it's been timeless in the way that it summarizes and expresses the Reformed faith. And it speaks to one generation after another. 
There's not many documents other than Scripture itself for which that can be said, that continue to be read, and not only read, but embraced after so many years. And what's especially amazing about, about the Heidelberg Catechism in, in this respect is it isn't famous or timeless because of its specific circumstances in which it was written. And that way it's very different from, say, the Westminster Confession, which was written by a, a church council, or even from the Nicene Creed. Those documents are good, they're good summaries of the Christian faith, but the main reason that they're famous is because of the circumstances in which they were written. They were put together by major church bodies. The Heidelberg Catechism is different in that way. It was commissioned by, yes, a prince of Germany, so not someone of complete insignificance, but he was only one of several princes controlling one of several territories in Germany, and other parts had their own catechisms. So it wasn't the fame or the significance of the author that made this catechism so famous. Instead, every now and then in history, you have these rare documents that immediately resonate with people. They grab people, and they take hold of people in such a way that they immediately spread across the continent from one territory to another. And that was very much the case with the Heidelberg Catechism. It wasn't designed to be the catechism of half of the Reformed churches around the world the way it is today. It was only intended for that region, the Palatinate of Germany, where it was written. But very soon after it was written, it spread from one country to another, so that within ten years, it was translated already into half a dozen different languages as far away as Greece. So the way it expressed the Christian faith, and the way it was so clearly grounded in Scripture, it spoke winsomely and compellingly to people across the globe, and in our experience, it continues to do so. So all that by way of introduction, that's why we use the Heidelberg Catechism as our guide. It's a human document, it's an imperfect document, it wasn't inspired the way that Scripture was, but it has a beautiful summary of the faith that we also hold dear. Well, the first Lord's Day is easily the most famous in the Catechism. The question just grabs us and stops us right in our tracks. What is your only comfort in life and death? That, brothers and sisters, is the most important question that you will ever be asked. It gets right to the heart of your life. Let me explain what the Catechism is asking. That that word comfort, it can sometimes throw us off causing us to, to, to miss the importance of the question that's being asked. In our day, comfort can sometimes carry the wrong connotations. When we hear comfort, we might think of comfort food or a comforting hug or comforting words. And that kind of comfort is valuable, but it's not the kind of comfort that the catechism is asking us about. It's not asking what kinds of things comfort you in your life or what kinds of things make you feel better in times of grief. Instead, the key to the the question here is the word only. What is your only comfort? It's asking for something much bigger, much greater. In the original German, the word that that we translate comfort was a German word. I might butcher it as I pronounce it, but they say trust, which I'm told carries this, this connotation of assurance or security or surety. Some have suggested here that the picture is 
is sort of like a lifeline. You fall off of a boat into a stormy sea and a lifeline is, is thrown at you in the water. And the question is, what is that lifeline for you? What's the one thing you hold on to even when you're willing to let everything else go? That's what the, the authors had in mind. What is your lifeline? What is the one thing that matters to you most in life and in death? And that is then the most important question that you'll ever be asked. People are going to answer this question very differently. It shows what they're living for. For some individuals, I I would hope few, but certainly some, the answer would be money. Some would admit, or some some would maybe not admit it, but but they, they might not even recognize it. But for some, this really is their default source of comfort. If everything else falls away, well, at the end of the day, at least I still have my bank account, and that will keep me secure. That I'm going to hold on to for dear life. Now, most people recognize how empty that is, even in the world, and so they find their only comfort in other things. For some, it's pleasure. When I reach the end of my life, then at least I'll be able to say that I had a good time while I was here. I made the most of what I had. And that's good. It's a good thing. But the truth stares us in the face. That is no comfort for life and certainly no comfort for death. What's the point of having a good time if we disappear into oblivion afterwards? And even in this life, how is the comfort of pleasure supposed to be any real comfort when my health fails or when my money disappears or when my loved ones die or if my family is torn apart by wars or conflicts? This life is far too full of sorrow for pleasure to somehow be our only, our highest comfort Now, there are other things that maybe come closer to our only comfort. Some people would say family is the one thing that they'll hold on to when everything else falls apart. And family is very often the anchor that holds us steady in terrible times. It's a good thing. That's the way that God has made this world. But is it, even family, is it enough to be our only comfort in life and death? The truth is, Even our families will let us down. Sometimes our families will betray us. We are sinners, all of us, even the ones that we hold dearest. We're selfish sinners, even the best of us. So can family still be our anchor when, even if God forbid, our marriages fall apart? Or when we grow old and our kids don't call us anymore, at least not as often as we would like? then can family still be our only comfort? The truth is, those who live for their families, and especially those who live for their children, will ultimately destroy their children. Our children need to see us living for something greater than them. If we make them the anchor or the center of our lives, then we will ultimately ruin them and find ourselves very disappointed. They can't be our hope. We can't put our ultimate trust and hope even in our families. Some would say self-respect is the one thing that they'll hold on to even if everything else falls apart. And it's good. It's also a worthy goal to hold on to our integrity. Self-respect is a thing to fight for. But it still doesn't work as an ultimate 
comfort. We grow old and we let ourselves down in many, many ways. The elderly among us know this. We will disappoint ourselves. And sometimes we will disappoint ourselves in ways that we never completely get over. So this is the most important question that we will be asked. What is the one thing that you will cling to even if you have to let go of everything else? What is the anchor for your soul? And is it big enough? Is it solid enough to be your consolation, not just in life, but also in the face of death? So that's the question that the catechism begins with. And there's also an important backdrop to that question. The catechism was, of course, primarily a teaching tool for the young people. And so the backdrop to that question is the faith of former generations that many of these young people would know about. The young people among us also are going to have to grow up and they're going to have to make this choice for themselves. What is going to be their only comfort And as we're faced with that decision, we're also reminded then of the saints who have gone before us. See, the question itself, what is your only comfort, it assumes that there is an answer that is worthy of being the answer to that question. There's no point in asking the question if you don't know of a worthy answer. And if you know that there's an answer, and you know that there is an answer, if you look at the lives of Christians who have gone before us, Some of them suffered unimaginable trials. We read about some of them in Hebrews, those who were afflicted, destitute, tortured, who lost everything that they had, many who even gave up their lives, and yet still somehow, Hebrews says, they were able to rejoice. When you see the lives of former generations of Christians, it's obvious there is an answer to this question. They had an ultimate comfort. They had something that was worth living for and even dying for. The question, it stares you in the face when you read someone like the Apostle Paul who says, we were afflicted in in every way, but we were not crushed. We were perplexed, but we were not driven to despair. We were persecuted, yes, but we were never forsaken. We were struck down, but we were never destroyed. Leaves you wondering, what is my only comfort that would hold me in a time like that? The question nags at you when you read Hebrews 11, telling us about these saints who have gone before us. What is my hope that would enable me to stand among such people? Or when you read of the Hebrew Christians who it says had endured hard struggles with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, who had compassion on those in prison, and and, and listen to this, who joyfully accepted the plundering of their property since they knew that they had a better possession and and an abiding one. What is that possession for us? What is the thing that we're willing to even rejoice at the, at the sight of losing everything we have because we know that we have that possession? And so the beginning of the catechism urges us to be thinking about this. We reflect on their lives and, and we're left thinking, I want that comfort too. I want that hope. Whatever it is that those Christians were living for, that's what I want for myself as well. Whatever they had, it's clearly greater than anything else that anyone else in the world is living for. 
And such a life makes any other purpose, whether that's money or approval or even valuable things like family and self-respect, it makes a life that lives for those things very small, very even pathetic in comparison. They had something much, much greater to live for. And so it is the most important question that we will ever be asked. What is our only comfort? What is the one thing you hold on to if you're willing to lose even everything else for it? And there's only one answer that can possibly be good enough. Those who have gone before us, those who rejoiced even as they gave up their lives, they had something, that one thing that made it all worth it. And the answer that the catechism gives is this. The one thing that I hold on to, that I won't let go of, even if I lose everything else, the one thing that assures me, that comforts me, even when the trials of life break down on me, even when death itself comes for me, the one thing is this. I know that I am not my own. I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice from our reading in Romans, this is the same comfort that assured the Apostle Paul when he was faced with trials. He asks in those famous verses in Romans 8, he says, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else will be able to separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. That hope is a hope that is worthy of being our only comfort. You can take everything else away from a Christian, but if they still have the love of Christ, then that is all that they need, and still much more besides. It's the same hope that you see in in someone like David thousands of years earlier. He says in Psalm 63, Your steadfast love is better than life itself. Or in Psalm 23, famous verses, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. Or Psalm 27, we sang this a moment ago, One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Or, just one more, in Psalm 73, David asked, Who do I have in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing that I desire apart from you. My flesh may fail, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now we see there, David says it, it generally, God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Whereas Paul in the catechism, they, also, they say it more specifically. They center our hope specifically in Christ. What is my only comfort according to the catechism that I belong to Christ? And there's no, there's no contradiction between the way that David says it and the way that Paul and, and the catechism say it. Think of the way that Paul says it. It helps us to understand how those two things are are one and the same thing. He says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, it's the hope that David had, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's one and the same hope. Our hope is to be received into the presence of God the Father. 
Our comfort is that even in the worst trials, God the Father is working all things for good. And we know that, and we know what, what David didn't yet fully know. We belong to the Father through belonging to Christ, his Son. That's what makes belonging to Christ the treasure that it is. God the Father receives us because we belong to Christ. And you see that in the prayer of the Lord Jesus as well in John 17. He says to the Father, I am praying for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine. Through Christ, we not only receive all of the benefits that he directly gives us, the forgiveness of our sins, redemption from the power of the devil. Those gifts themselves are a cause for rejoicing forever. But even more, because we, we are his and because he is ours, the entire trinity is ours. The Father is ours and the Spirit is ours. The Father receives us as his own children as brothers and sisters to Christ, so that we can have complete confidence because of Christ that not a hair from our heads will fall without his Father's will. And the Spirit of God also is ours. He's devoted to us, working in us, strengthening us, refining us, transforming us, changing our lives, changing our desires, making us willing like David to live and to die for him. All those blessings, and any one of them is far greater than life itself, all of those are ours because we are Christ's. That is the comfort that is worth being our only comfort in life and death. And so Christ is our only refuge. Christ is the lifeline that is thrown out to us when we are in the water. He is the one thing that we hold on to even when we lose everything else. He's the rock, as David says, on which we are secure. So in order to have that that same suffering, scorning, death-defying joy that we see in David and in Paul and in, in others, the thousands of others, the saints that Hebrews mentions, in order to have that, we need to know some things. It's built on a faith That includes knowledge. And so, brothers and sisters, that's why we do this every Sunday afternoon. Opening scripture to remind ourselves again of the essential truths of our faith. If that hope that we see in the Christians who have gone before us, that scripture also calls us to have, if that hope is going to stay first on our minds, if that joy is going to be foremost in our lives, then we're going to need to know some things, and we're going to need to know them well. They need to be not only truths that we understand in our brains, but truths that make it down into our hearts. These are essential doctrines. They should never become old news to us, because they continue to be true. They continue to be relevant and eternally important for us. And so the catechism summarizes the things that we, know, that we need to know in order for this joy to be ours. There's three things. We need to know first that we're sinners. We need to know what that means that we're sinners. We need to know how serious that is, what the consequences for that are. 
There's no way we're ever going to find true joy if we don't first recognize the profound twistedness in our own hearts that has robbed us of our joy by turning us away from God. He's the source of all true joy. There's no way we're ever going to know joy then if we don't see the brokenness inside of us that has severed that relationship from God. Second, we need to know that Christ came to save sinners. We need to know how he saves them. We need to know what his death means for us. We need to know how his blood covers our guilt, how his resurrection gives us new life. We need to know how we have died with him, how we're raised back to life with him. We need to know how, how it's possible that unclean, perverse sinners can be welcomed into the presence of God, righteous, holy God, and be reconciled to such a God through Christ. And third, we need to know what it means now as those who have been redeemed to also live with God and live for God. And so every week then in the afternoon, we open up God's word to remember these things again, to remind ourselves of these things, and to see also new, deeper dimensions of these old things that are true and why they matter. We want, with all the strength that we have, to live and die in the joy of that comfort that we see in the catechism, that we see in the lives of Christians who have gone before us, and that scripture also calls us to have And so, brothers and sisters, as we begin studying these things again, let us make it our purpose to grow in our knowledge and our understanding of the essential doctrines of our faith, to go deeper, to see broader, to reflect on the thousands of different ways in which these things are true and are necessary so that our faith and our joy may also grow stronger and deeper. Let's make the second service then a priority. Not not only because this is where God's people are gathered, and it's the Christian's desire then to be there wherever they are gathered. Not only for that reason, but also because by sitting before God's word, as it teaches us on these essential truths of our faith, these fundamental truths, so our faith And our joy that flows out of that faith may be greater still, deeper still, and even more unshakable and even more overflowing to the praise and glory of God. Amen. Let's respond by singing together the question and answer from the Catechism as we have it in hymn 64.